There are new COVID guidelines from the CDC this morning. As the Omicron variant continues to spread, the question is, will the updated recommendations help industries currently being crushed by callouts? Plus, vaccines are already required for international travelers flying into the U.S. The question is, could a mandate for domestic air travel also be on the way? And the House investigation into the January 6th attack on the Capitol set to enter a new phase. With more public hearings on the way, the question is, what new information will we learn? It's way too early for this. Good morning and welcome to Way Too Early, the show that is glad to be in the final days of 2021. I'm John Lemire on this Tuesday, December 28th, and let's start with the news. The CDC is out with new COVID guidelines shortening the recommended isolation and quarantine times for those who test positive or are exposed to the virus. This comes as the fast-spreading Omicron variant puts pressures on hospitals, airlines, and other businesses. Here's a look at the new recommendations. Those who test positive but have no symptoms should now isolate for just five days instead of 10, followed by five days of mask wearing. The clock starts the day you test positive, and this is important. The guidance is the same regardless of vaccination status. That's raised a few eyebrows. The quarantine time for those who have been exposed to someone with COVID has also been cut. Those who are boosted or have been fully vaccinated within six months can skip quarantine, test on day five, and then wear masks for 10 days. Those who are not boosted are unvaccinated or who were vaccinated more than six months ago should quarantine for five days instead of 10, followed by five days of mask use. The UK shortened its isolation period from 10 days to seven a week ago. The US then made a similar move for healthcare workers last week, cutting times to just five days. The decision to loosen restrictions follows research that shows people are more likely to transmit the virus one to two days before showing symptoms and then two to three days after doing so. The director of the CDC says this is the best way to keep society functioning while still following the science of the virus. Meanwhile, hospitals across the country are bracing for a surge in cases fueled by the new highly transmissible variant. States such as New York, Louisiana, and Texas are seeing record-breaking numbers of daily cases leading to increased hospitalization. Health officials say the steadily climbing number of daily cases is challenging efforts to provide patient care. As nurses and doctors test positive for COVID, it's creating severe staffing shortages and delaying procedures. Officials say the new demands are straining a health system that's already worn out by nearly two years of this pandemic. Meanwhile, callouts from infected airline workers are likely to disrupt air travel for a fifth straight day today. According to the website FlightAware, nearly 1,500 flights were canceled within, into, or out of the United States yesterday. Another 600 flights have already been canceled so far today. All of this is happening as tens of thousands fly for the holidays. Now, to whether airlines should require proof of vaccination for flyers. Dr. Anthony Fauci said yesterday on Morning Joe that the White House should consider mandating vaccines for any domestic air travel. When you make vaccination a requirement, that's another incentive to get more people vaccinated. If you want to do that with domestic flights, I think that's something that seriously should be considered. 
That was a response to my question on Morning Joe yesterday. The White House has not changed its policy yet. The, the U.S. currently mandates most foreign nationals traveling into the country be fully vaccinated. However, citizens only need to show proof of a negative test taken within a day of boarding. White House officials I spoke to yesterday say this is still on the table, but not something, a domestic vaccine requirement, that has been put into play yet. Meanwhile, the January 6th Select Committee will hold public hearings in the new year on the insurrection from start to finish, according to The Washington Post. It will also craft a sizable interim report by summer. The Post reports the looming midterm elections have added a sense of urgency to the committee's work, as Republicans are expected to shut down the probe if they regain control of the House of Representatives. The panel is examining whether to recommend the Justice Department pursue charges against anyone, including former President Donald Trump, and whether legislative proposals are needed to help prevent valid election results from being overturned in the future. The committee is zeroing in on the January 6th activities of Republican lawmakers Jim Jordan of Ohio and Scott Perry of Pennsylvania. Also, a January 5th phone call that, according to The Guardian, was made by then-President Trump to his lieutenants working out of the Willard Hotel near the White House. That call allegedly sought ways to stop Biden's certification from taking place the very next day. Committee Chairman Benny Thompson says the panel is looking into details of that conversation held in documents by the National Archives. Trump is fighting the release of those records in a case at the Supreme Court. Joining us now, congressional reporter for Politico, my colleague Nicholas Wu. Nicholas, great to see you. Thanks for being here this morning. As we just outlined, the committee is ramping up, trying to get out as much information as possible before the midterms, and ideally a few months before the interims, the midterms. Any word on who first witnesses, the first witnesses might be, and whether subpoenas might be necessary for their congressional colleagues? Well, first of all, it, it, uh, the, the witnesses that they might call, I, I think we can look at the trail that they've left behind in the people that they've called uh, before the committee privately. So, for example, look at the election officials who have spoken to the committee before. Um, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, for example. Um, committee Chair Benny Thompson has talked about wanting to bring uh, people who can highlight efforts to overturn the election. Election officials, for example, uh, state legislators. Uh, those can, who can help illustrate the story that the committee hopes to tell about um, the through line from attempts to overturn the election leading all the way up to January 6th. And so we can expect to see uh, a whole host of different characters called for that. Now, as for subpoenas for lawmakers, you know, this is something that will set up a real test for the committee. The question is really going to be how far they're going to go to try to get the information they seek from lawmakers and you know, with uh, Congressman Perry flatly refusing uh, to cooperate with the committee and, and Congressman Jim Jordan uh, probably unlikely to do so, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to see if the committee is going to subpoena them. They, they, they previously sought phone records from some lawmakers but stopped short of actually subpoenaing them. Uh, and so um, it remains to be seen whether the same will be done with their testimony. Two questions about the former president. First, is there any sort of timetable as to when the Supreme Court will make a decision about uh, the records at the National Archives? And secondly, we know, and the committee's kind of hinted at this, that he might be the target at the end. Uh, as we about to turn into 2022, what's the likelihood in your estimation that we could see movement against Trump himself? Well, the House is asking the Supreme Court to really turbocharge its uh, review of this case. So uh, as we enter the very final stages of this uh 
uh, of this whole legal process. You know, we'll, we'll see that start to play out in the coming weeks. Uh, as for the spotlight on Trump, I mean, from the very beginning, uh, the committee has made clear that they're willing to look at whomever uh, might have been responsible for the attack. And if, you know, not so subtly hinted that any actions by Trump uh, could be held liable. Uh, Vice Chair Liz Cheney has talked about, um, you know, has raised the specter of uh, potential obstruction uh, charges. So, you know, they're still gathering all of their facts, and you know we'll have to see what comes out in their final report. But you know Trump looms large over it all. Nicholas, one last for you about, of course, the pandemic, which is shadowing everything right now. Politico is out with a report that the new variant is causing an outcry from businesses, perhaps for another COVID relief bill in the new year. Have you heard any? If that's gaining any traction on the Hill, particularly with midterms coming, it seems like a pretty tricky political sell at this moment, particularly with the fate of the president's Build Back Better Act, still uncertain. Absolutely. I mean, it's a it's a steep order um, to to spend that much money on a covid relief bill in any. I mean, I remember how uh, pitched some of the battles were over covid relief uh, last year and before. Um, but from what I've heard from Democrats so far, I mean, most of the focus is on trying to save um, the president's Build Back Better proposal. And I mean, think about it. If you if you can't pass uh, a piece of legislation like that, nearly $2 trillion piece of legislation. Uh, yeah, I think the odds of passing a COVID relief bill, um, you know, which would probably be a large sum of money as well, um, let alone in a midterm year, are, are, are relatively slim. Politico's Nicholas Wu, I agree. And thank you so much for being here today. Still ahead, we're remembering the legendary military figure best known for founding Navy SEAL Team 6, the group, of course, that killed Osama bin Laden in 2011. Plus, the ongoing pandemic continues to impact companies all over the country. But one industry is really feeling it right now. Pharmacies, we'll get into that. And coming up later in the hour, Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell will be my guest. We'll be right back with that and so much more in a minute. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. The first commanding officer of Navy SEAL Team 6 has died. Richard Marcinka was a two-time Vietnam War veteran who also served in Cambodia and Iran. He was best known for creating the Navy SEAL Team 6 in the wake of a failed attempt to rescue the American hostages in Iran back in 1980. He commanded the elite team for three years. The unit, of course, is best known for killing Osama bin Laden in 2011. Marcinko enlisted in the Navy in 1958 and eventually worked his way up to the rank of commander. 
In addition to his military career, he wrote several books, including an autobiography titled Rogue Warrior. His son told the New York Times he may have died from a heart attack in his Virginia home on Christmas Day. He was 81 years old. U.S. and Russian officials will take part in security talks next month amid rising tensions over Ukraine. A White House spokesperson announced the January 10th meeting, saying, quote, when we sit down to talk, Russia can put its concerns on the table and we will put our concerns on the table with Russia's activities as well. Those U.S. concerns, of course, are centered around a buildup of Russian troops near Ukraine's border, sparking fears of a possible invasion there. The Kremlin denies any plans for military action against Ukraine and has put forth a list of security proposals it wants to negotiate with the White House. So there may be soon a new category added to the labor shortage, pharmacy technicians. With a renewed push for vaccines and boosters, their absence is now leading to store closures across the country and delays on prescriptions. NBC News correspondent Vicki Wynn has more. Mom of four, Heidi Strell, spent more than 16 years working as a pharmacy technician at a Rite Aid near Pittsburgh. In October, she abruptly quit the job she loved and thought she'd retire from. All of the parts of my job that I have truly enjoyed over the years have slowly just gone away with pandemic stress and just all the unpleasantness that is going on in healthcare and in retail today. Pharmacy techs support the pharmacists, count pills, answer calls, work the register and more. But increasingly, they're quitting. In a survey of independent pharmacy owners who make up a third of retail pharmacies, nearly 90 percent say they can't find technicians. Why are pharmacy techs so fed up? I mean, I really think a lot of it comes to the fact that we are grossly underpaid across the board. Median pay for a pharmacy tech is about $16 an hour. But it's not just wages. It was routine in my store when I was leaving to be three to 500 scripts past due at any given time. And this means people could be going without their needed medications for days? Absolutely. NBC News spoke to 22 retail pharmacy technicians in 16 states who recently quit or were considering quitting their jobs at major chain pharmacies. Each said their biggest concern was patient safety. In some states, you have, you know, 60 or 70 pharmacies that are closing for days on days on end because they don't have the appropriate staff. Al Carter leads the National Association of Boards of Pharmacy. He says the shortage of pharmacy techs has led to a spike in complaints and concerns about medication mistakes. In the last three or four months, I've received probably double the number of patient letters than I have in the last year. We reached out to the country's leading pharmacy chains. Rite Aid, where Heidi works, said in a statement, to help alleviate stress immediately, we are temporarily closing most of our pharmacies one hour early to allow our pharmacy teams to catch up from the day and prep for the next. CVS and Walgreens acknowledged workforce shortages, Walgreens saying it continuously reviews staffing levels and impacted stores may have temporarily adjusted hours. CVS said its teams remain flexible in meeting patients' needs in a dynamic environment. All three say they're actively recruiting, with CVS and Walgreens increasing starting tech salaries to $15 an hour. Heidi says she wants pharmacy techs to receive standardized training and competitive wages. Now that the technicians are leaving en masse, uh, hopefully they will figure out that they need to make a change. Still ahead, some good news. Despite postponing a few more games, the NHL is set to hit the ice once again. Plus, a record number of NFL players have been placed on the COVID list. That news, not as good. Sports, next. 
Get the best of MSNBC all in one place every day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning in your inbox, you'll find expert analysis, video highlights of your favorite shows. Running for re-election is when you actually get your report card from the American people. Previews from our podcasts and documentaries, as well as written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves. Understand today's news. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com. Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election. Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday. Here they come. Book able to get rid of it. It's picked off. Intercepted. Nick Needham into the end zone for the pick six. The Dolphins welcome Saints rookie quarterback Ian Book to the NFL, getting the scoring started last night with an interception return 28 yards for a touchdown in the first quarter. The Miami defense would pick off Book twice in the game and sack him eight times. On offense, the Dolphins got a boost from rookie wide receiver Jalen Waddell. He's good. He caught 10 passes for 92 yards and a score in his return from the COVID list. Miami beats the shorthanded Saints 20-3, becoming the first NFL team to win seven straight after losing seven in a row. The Dolphins are now one of four 8-7 teams in contention for one of the final AFC playoff spots. And we'll say this, a lot of really bad football games lately. Clearly, it's the impact of having so many players on the COVID list. It's also a longer season this year. The quality of play seems to be uh, subpar in around much of the league. Speaking of the coronavirus, well, it's continuing to infect players across the NFL. A record 106 players were added to the COVID list yesterday, bringing the total this month to 505, 461 of those since December 13th. Yesterday's additions include six new cases among the Carolina Panthers, who now have 13 on the list, and another 10 added by the Jacksonville Jaguars. Meanwhile, the league is now requiring all media covering postseason teams and games to receive a COVID booster by January 12th. Players, though, still not required to do so. After losing opponents to COVID issues, Central Michigan and Washington State will play in a bowl game now. They'll face each other in the Sun Bowl coming up this Friday. It follows Boise State's withdrawal from the Arizona Bowl yesterday, which frees up Central Michigan to play Washington State after Miami dropped out on Sunday. While the Sun Bowl moves forward, the Arizona Bowl marks the fourth bowl game to be canceled because of the pandemic. But pro hockey is back. The NHL will return from a six-day pause tonight after it took an extended holiday break amid a surge in infections among players. It comes despite three more games postponed this week, bringing the total to 70 this season and dozens more players entering virus protocol yesterday, with minor leaguers taking their place and taxi squads added to keep the season going. Of course, NHL players, as we reported yesterday, will no longer participate in the Beijing Olympics in February. NBA players who now test positive have a quicker path to return to play after an update to the league's virus protocols yesterday. That shortened the isolation period to six days from 10, provided those players are asymptomatic and meet other testing standards. The change went out the same day the CDC cut quarantine restrictions down to five days.
With around 120 players remaining in the NBA virus protocols yesterday evening, teams continue to rely on replacements. That includes veteran setter Greg Monroe, who checked in for the Minnesota Timberwolves last night after signing a 10-day contract earlier in the day and made history as the NBA record 541st player used in the league this season. Mind you, the season's not even half over. Monroe scored 11 points in his return to an NBA roster for the first time since 2019, helping the T-Wolves beat the ugh, really disappointing Boston Celtics 108-103. to There's simply no excuse for that. That's a team that can't close games. Time now for the weather, and let's go to meteorologist Michelle Grossman for the latest. What's the forecast out there, Michelle? Hey there, Jonathan. Well, we have it all. We have summer-like weather where temperatures are going to be into the upper 80s today. And then we have wind chills in some spots that are going to be 50 below zero. So let's take a look first at winter alerts because they are stretching coast to coast from the west to the upper Great Lakes, upper Midwest to the northeast. 25 million people impacted today with that persistent snow across the west. And then we could see some slick roadways in the northeast today due to a mixture of snow and rain, even some sleet in some spots. So the setup for the west, it can continues heavy snow and wind in the four corners and then winds gusting to 50 miles per hour so not feeling great out there and then by tomorrow guess what we have another storm system that will slide down the coast it's going to bring heavy rain and snow to parts of southern california parts of the west so we could see another foot of snow in some spots that's in the darker colors where you see the pink and even seeing a lot of rain in some spots especially los angeles county possibly some localized flooding there especially where there's some burned areas now let's talk about that bit blast because we are so cold this morning. It is 15 degrees below zero in Glasgow, but it feels like 34 below zero and it feels like minus 18 in Bismarck. Jonathan? Minus 18 in Bismarck. Bundle up, folks. Michelle Grossman, thank you so much Mm -hmm. for being here. Still ahead, President Biden tries to reassure state and local leaders amid a surge in COVID cases nationwide. We'll show you his new message to governors. But before we go to break, we want to know, why are you awake? Email your reasons to waytooearly at msnbc.com or tweet me at John Lemire. Be sure to use the hashtag waytooearly. We'll read a few of our favorite answers later in the show. Welcome back to Way Too Early. It's 5.30 on the East Coast, 2.30 out West. I'm Jonathan Lemire. President Joe Biden signed into law a $768 billion National Defense Authorization Act. He issued a statement supportive of the measure overall, but critical of provisions that effectively prevent him from closing the Guantanamo Bay detention facility. The statement reads in part, Unfortunately, the act continues to bar the use of funds to transfer Guantanamo Bay detainees to the custody or effective control of certain foreign countries and bars the use of funds to transfer detainees into the United States unless certain conditions are met. I urge the Congress to eliminate these restrictions as soon as possible. The bill authorizes $740 billion for the Defense Department, which is $25 billion more than the president requested. That includes a 2.7% pay raise for service members. It also includes just under $28 billion for defense-related activities in the Department of Energy. Amid a sharp increase in COVID cases and long lines for testing, President Biden is working to reassure state and local leaders about the administration's response to the pandemic. Biden held a phone call with several governors yesterday, promising to provide aid to states struggling with the Omicron variant. 
But he also acknowledged that state and local governments will need to take the lead in controlling the spread. Here's some of what the president said just before that phone call. Look, there is no federal solution. This gets solved at a state level. My message to the governor is simple. If you need something, say something. And we, uh, we're going to have your back in any way we can. Seeing how tough it was for some folks to get a test this weekend shows that we have more work to do, and we're doing it. The bottom line is we want to assure the American people that we're prepared. We know what it takes. And as, uh, as this group of bipartisan governors has shown, we're going to get through it by working together. Joining us now, there he is, NBC News White House correspondent Mike Memley. Mike, Merry Christmas. Uh, that clip Merry we Christmas. just played with the president saying there is no federal solution to deal with Omicron uh, drew a lot of attention yesterday. Uh, people, some of the, his critics have pointed out that uh, it stands in stark contrast to what he said right in, back in January, where he said the federal government would take the lead on this. And the idea of the federal government not taking the lead Sounds a lot like what President Trump said at certain moments during 2020. How is the White House explaining that remark? Give us some more context. What did the president mean? Well, John, as always, the context is important here. And when this was the first time the president was participating in a call that his COVID response team does on a fairly regular basis with the nation's governors. And whenever you get a president together with governors, you're going to hear a lot of discussion of sort of federal mandates getting in the way of state innovation. And that's exactly what was happening here. The president was responding directly to what he had just heard from the Republican governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchison, who had talked about his concern about federal solutions getting in the way of state actions. And there was specifically referring to this issue that is really beguiling both the federal and state leaders, which is testing. Uh, What the president was discussing was the fact that his administration obviously had uh, ordered the purchase of half a billion tests. Now, what Governor Hutchison was mentioning was the fact that states uh, and governors are under tremendous pressure as well from their citizens to make a supply of testing available. The, the president also referred in that answer uh, to the governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, who had really led the way, actually, in a solution that the uh, we saw the White House mock just a few weeks ago, this idea of sending tests to every home in the state. Uh, the president referred to Governor Sununu there uh, in his answer. So this is something that we've seen as the president has really tried to set a national tone in terms of mandates uh, on workforces, in terms of masking, things uh, like that. States have really challenged him in court in so many cases as well. So there's a little bit of give and take in that response there. Uh, I don't think anything is standing in the way of the federal government, the president in particular, continuing to try to uh, push forward solutions here uh, to try to deal with this. But ultimately, the president was speaking to an audience he knows is dealing, as he put it, uh, with this on the front lines. And his message more broadly was that anything you ask for, we're going to be here to offer. And we actually heard from Governor Hutchison some, you know, uh, praise for the collaboration that there has been between the federal and the state level on this issue. Yeah, rare praise from a Republican governor uh, these days. Uh, Mike, briefly drill down a little further on the testing. Can you give us an update in terms of the timeline when we're going to see the surge of federal government provided tests uh, and how how will people get their hands on them? Uh, There are still a lot of questions around this, Jonathan. It's really interesting. In the day after the White House announced this plan to make the 500 million take-home tests available, they still didn't have a website ready. Uh, There's still very sort of straightforward questions about how many tests can each household request. 
Uh, when are how are they going to prioritize who is going to be getting these if they request m- many? Obviously, equity has been a big issue that this administration has put forward. So this seemed to be an announcement that was a little bit ahead of the planning. The White House says that they're very much engaged in that kind of planning. But I think we're still weeks away from seeing this. But what Dr. Fauci said in an interview with Kristen Welker last night was that this is really just the beginning. The 500 million is going to be the beginning of monthly purchases of a similar number from the federal government to be making this available. What we've seen is this is an administration that focused so much on the vaccines and making sure there was enough supply there. Now, as we see a much more contagious, but perhaps a less severe variant, the issue really is about testing and making sure we have enough people in the workforce, uh, something we see the administration now trying to play catch up on. Coming to us live from what appears to be a Rehoboth Beach, Delaware hotel room as he covers the president's you know winter well. break, NBC's Mike Memoli. We really appreciate it. Happy New Year, pal. Still ahead, after the biggest holiday sales increase in nearly two decades, businesses are bracing for the great exchange. We'll tell you what that means when way too early comes right back. Time now for some of the business news you need to start your day. And we've got some good news for retailers. This year saw the biggest annual increase in holiday sales in 17 years, despite supply chain issues and, of course, Omicron concerns. According to MasterCard, sales rose 8.5% compared to a year ago. The National Retail Federation reports that holiday sales may reach $859 billion this holiday season. A bunch of that ended up for my kids. That's up nearly 11% from pre-pandemic levels. That surge in sales led to a Merry Christmas for retailers. But now, the great exchange is underway, with some shoppers returning items that weren't on their wish lists. NBC News correspondent Shaquille Brewster explains. Now comes the multi-billion dollar effort to correct Santa's mistakes. I would say it's like 75 to 80%. It's going to go back. After holiday sales saw their biggest increase in 17 years, up 8.5% compared to 2020. Two in every three shoppers are now planning at least one return, putting an estimated $120 billion worth of products back into the system. And returns, while maybe free to you, are costing stores more than ever this year. With jumps in labor, transportation, and storage prices, processing a return costs retailers an average of $33 for a $50 gift. When a consumer takes advantage of free shipping, that cost, which is not free, has to be borne somewhere. And the only somewhere in a retail setting is in the price of the goods. The costs also extending to the environment. Returns produced an estimated 5.8 billion pounds of waste in 2020. Often those gifts you return don't even make it to the original store shelf, but rather end up in a warehouse like this, where they're resold to third parties. Companies like B-Stock processing those unwanted items for some of the nation's largest retailers, now bracing for what they're calling a tsunami of returns. The continued shift for folks to to buying online is going to result in some increases in customer returns. Items bought online sent back two times as often as in-store purchases, adding to the flood of returns in this season of giving back. With so much online shopping, it's easy to make a mistake on style or size. Not that I know anything about that. Our thanks to NBC's Shaquille Brewster for that report. And still ahead, is there a path forward on Build Back Better? 
Congressman Debbie Dingell weighs in next. And as we go to break, a look at this date in history. 48 years ago, the Endangered Species Act was signed into law. The Endangered Species Act remains one of the nation's most supported and most controversial laws. Measure of success under the Endangered Species Act is not the number of species you list, but in fact, how many species you prevent from declining. The chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, Democrat Pramila Jayapal of Washington State, says her faction of the party will continue to fight for President Biden's Build Back Better agenda. In a new Washington Post op-ed, the congresswoman criticizes Senator Joe Manchin, who announced last week that he would vote no on the landmark bill. She writes, on December 20th, Senator Manchin went back on his commitment to the president and seemingly killed the bill on national television. In a town where your word is everything, this was a stunning rebuke of his own party's president. Despite that, we must move forward. We are calling on the president to use executive action to immediately improve people's lives. Taking executive action will also make clear to those who hinder Build Back Better that the White House and Democrats will deliver for Americans. We can't be naive about the difficulty of once again negotiating with someone who has not kept his commitments. But legislation remains the best path for delivering enduring relief. Nor can we underestimate the urgency to act. Joining us now, one of our favorites, Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell of Michigan. Congresswoman, happy holidays. Thank you so much for being here. Let's start there with the Build Back Better Act. First, do you share the Congresswoman's frustration with Senator Manchin? And second, do you see any path forward for it to pass in 2022? Well, Merry Christmas uh, and almost Happy New Year. I think all of us can't wait to say goodbye to 2021. Uh, I and think it was a really good time for the holidays to come. I think everybody needs to take a deep breath. I think there are so many things that are in the Build Back Better bill that people want and need, and that we got to get it done. Uh, look, I've known Joe Manchin a long time. I was surprised in the way that he did it, that both the president and Senator Manchin have indicated that they're willing to work together. Camilla is right that there are things in there, like lowering the cost of prescription drugs or worrying about our environment or getting people back to work and childcare issues that have to get done. So we need to come back after this holiday, go back to the table. Failure is not an option on so many of these issues. The problem is the parliamentary procedure to get these through is reconciliation. So there are many things in one bill. There are some things we should look at what, whether we can do by executive order, which quite frankly is happening on EVs and the 50% goal. By 2030, I worked hard with everybody on that, environmentalists, autos, unions, and the president. Get that done. But we can't stop. we got to keep moving forward. Congresswoman, you received recently a voicemail death threat. We're not going to play it here because of the profane language, but you're not alone. Lately, threats against lawmakers are dramatically increasing. Uh, some of your colleagues have also spoken out about against this. What can you say? What does this threat tell you about the current political climate in our country? I want it to be a wake-up call. You know, my colleague, Fred Upton, and I, Republican and Democrat, who work hard for Michigan and the country with many other people, Fred made a decision to release some of his, and they had asked me for one. I, you know, I'm going to tell you something. It's not one call. I get several of those a week. My young people are listening to those calls. But so are school board members and city council members, and so are you, and so are your colleagues that are just on the air. 
And so is the grocery store clerk. And I was at a Coney Island this week. And what the waitress told me she'd been a waitress for 35 years and she had never been treated so rudely. And she was thinking about quitting. I've talked to people. I had a woman that works at the Detroit airport that was in tears at how people are treating her. It's got to stop. We all have to start. We're frustrated. We're angry. There are a lot of things that are getting to us. But this isn't America. Community is the strength of America. And I'm going to tell you, it's becoming a line I use a lot. United we stand, divided we fall, and this division, fear, and anger has got to stop. Yeah, the lack of civility is seemingly growing only more rampant in our society, as evidenced by the Let's Go Brandon nonsense with that caller to the president's face the other day when he was just wishing him a Merry Christmas. But, Congresswoman, let's turn our focus now to COVID. Your state has repeatedly been one of the hardest hit during this pandemic. And reports have that the cases are increasing now to over 6,000 cases a day in the past week in Michigan. What steps can Michigan take to curb the spread, with, especially with this new transmissible variant? How are the hospitals holding up there? And what can be done to encourage more of your fellow Michigan residents to get vaccinated and get their boosters? It's a problem. I'm going to say that to you point blank. I talk to the hospitals in my district every day. The University of Michigan, which is not only an anchor hospital for the state, but uh, for the country, is really struggling. They and another hospital uh, system that are closely located are talking about setting up a field hospital uh, by next week to start to handle the cases. I had another separate hospital system, and I want to protect HIPAA, who had a transplant patient who had been approved for a transplant, had the organ, the doctor team to do it, but not the ICU bed. This is, we all got to take, we got to really think about this. I, I was at a city council meeting for someone retiring last week for a health reason, and that one person in the room was wearing a mask. And I, you know, have a close enough relationship with them that I yelled at all of them and said, why are your masks? I was the only person wearing it. We have to think about each other. It's not only us that it's impacting, but we spread. I I am not someone that's upset about mask mandates as a lot of other people are. We all have to do something about it. I'm even a little worried about this CDC five day. Uh, uh, Lately, you can go back because that means people have to follow the rules. If you're running a fever or if you're still symptomatic, you're not cleared to go back to work. So uh, this is real. Too many people are dying. And if you were talking to the hospital systems that I am, you should be scared. Important words there from Congresswoman Debbie Dingell. Congresswoman, thank you again. Happy New Year. We will talk to you early in 2022, I am sure. Thank you. But I want you to watch the Michigan game, Jonathan. Oh, I'm, I'm rooting for I'm rooting for Michigan. I officially this is get me in trouble here with the host of uh, Morning Joe. But I'm tired of the SEC winning everything. I'm with the blue on this one. Thank you, Congresswoman. Yay. Earlier in the show, we asked all of you this important question. Why are you awake? One of your tweets, I'm still up because I live in Eagle River, Anchorage, Alaska. We're four hours behind you. And I like to go to bed knowing that the world is still intact. We should rebrand in Alaska way too late with Jonathan Lemire. Rita writes, I'm up early to work on a scientific grant. Hopefully my husband will be up soon to make the coffee. I'll add this as a tip, someone who's obviously up early. I tend to set the coffee up the night before, you know, put the water in, the grinds and so on. And therefore, it's just a matter of pushing a button when I wake up in the morning. You don't have to rely on your husband, who's potentially sleeping in. And another viewer is up way too early looking for a suspect. I woke up and this is what I found. It's a 
toilet paper roll shredded uh, across the floor. For those of you listening on the radio, the reader, the viewer adds, the cat says it wasn't him. Likely story. Up next, we'll get a live report from London as European officials weigh fourth dose of the coronavirus vaccine. And coming up on Morning Joe, a lineup of leading health experts break down the science behind new COVID guidelines from the CDC. Plus, a rare moment when Willie Geist won't be the most handsome man on Morning Joe as we take a look at the latest project from award-winning actor and activist Richard Gere. Morning Joe, just a few minutes away. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe.